Okay, good, good evening. Very welcome to, to uh, this uh, panel discussion on dictatorships. It's, it's, my name is Eric Bergloff. I'm the director of the Institute of Global Affairs. And uh, we are running together with the New York Times a series of events inspired by an exhibition of photojournalism that you can find down in the LSE atrium. It, the name of the photo photo exhibit is uh, Hard Truths, and it's pictures from five different localities, 60 pictures from five different localities. And what all those localities have in common is that they are classified as not being three by uh, the Freedom Index. And if we look at what has happened to uh, democracy over the last 12 years, you remember we had a period after the fall of the Berlin Wall, where we thought that the whole world would turn democratic. But if you look at over the last 12 years, the, there have been a, a continuing fall in terms of the measures of democracy that we use. And um, I have seen it myself. I've been working a lot in, in Eastern Europe, seeing how countries that I thought were, were secure as democracies show signs of uh, going the other direction. And, and for sure, uh, we have seen that in, in Russia. So, and, and we're now seeing that even in, in advanced economies that there are signs of, of the more authoritarian leadership uh, uh, spreading. We see emerging economies, almost all of them, show strong signs of, of authoritarian uh, leadership uh, coming back. So that's the, really the question for the evening. And we have brought together a, a quite diverse group of, of uh, perspectives on, on, uh, on this issue. And we will be led through the evening by Alan Cowell, who is a very experienced journalist for the New York Times. He's started out his career, I think, in, in Africa, and that's where you have seen a lot of uh, different um, forms of authoritarian leadership, of authoritarian uh, rule, but you have also had a career uh, through uh, a number of other positions um, uh, in, in the New York Times. But you're also an author, I understand, of several novels. And, and uh, you wrote about the victim of authoritarian government, the Litvinenko case. And, and um, we are very much honored that you have taken on to lead this uh, discussion tonight. So, Alan, please, the floor is yours. Okay. Uh, can everyone hear me? You might not be able to see me, but... Uh... As a journalist, I don't mind taking the low view of things, but um, uh, it's been my privilege. This is an incredibly powerful and august panel uh, we've got tonight. Uh, as you, I'll go uh, right to further right, I suppose, from my perspective, and I'm sure that does not reflect the politics of the panelists. Um, Bianca Hold Jagger. Closer to the mouth. Sorry? Is it on? Okay, is it better? Okay. All right. So Bianca Jagger has dedicated a lot of her life to campaigning for human rights, civil liberties, peace, social justice, and environmental protection throughout the world. She was born in Managua, Nicaragua. She's just returned from Nicaragua, which is uh, one of the most underreported examples of what goes wrong when a leader that people think of as uh, left, liberal, reforming, turns out to be rather similar to the dictator uh, who uh, long ago preceded him. 
Um, Bianca has um, <clears throat> founded her own foundation, a human rights foundation, in 2005. She's a Council of Europe goodwill ambassador. She has many other achievements, uh, and uh, I'm sure we all look forward very much to hearing about uh, Latin America, Central America, from her. Uh, here, n next to her is uh, Sir Richard Evans, who is the um, Regius Professor Emeritus of History in Cambridge. His work on uh, the rise of the Third Reich and Hitler is magisterial and uh, paramount in, in, in the field. Uh, we're very lucky that he's here. Uh, he's currently the provost of Gresham College in London. Um, he's an author of many works. Uh, his most recent book is The Pursuit of Power, Europe 1815 to 1914. And I think I'm allowed to say that you've got a fantastic biography of Eric Hobsbawm coming out in February. And then next to him, further to the right yet, is uh, Professor Andres Velasco, who is the Dean of the School of Public Policy at LSE. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a member of the G20 Eminent Persons Group. He has direct uh, knowledge and involvement in the politics of uh, Chile, uh, where he was a presidential candidate in 2013, and he served as the Minister of Finance between 2006 and 2010. Uh, during his tenure, he was widely applauded as the um, Latin American Finance Minister of the Year. So uh, we're very grateful to have him here with us. I think the way now is that each of the panelists would like to address this initial question of why we're moving back into an era um, of, if not a dictatorship, then certainly of more authoritarian rule than we've known in the past. So, uh, Bianca, if you'd like to start the ball rolling. If there is anything I can say, not only about Latin America and why we see now a resurgence of dictatorships, and I wouldn't really say resurgences because when we looked at Cuba, Venezuela, and even Nicaragua, it's been in the making for many, many years. I think that us liberals, we have been quite, um, we have treated these countries uh, with a kid glob and have not really come out and denounced them as dictatorship. The truth is that if we look at Cuba, if we look at Venezuela, if we look at Nicaragua, they all are dictatorships. Uh, if I can say anything about Nicaragua, is the fact that um, many people are surprised to think that Daniel Ortega, who was once in 1979 regarded as a hero by many people throughout the world, who had so much expectations and so much hope for the Sandinista revolution, it is not, this didn't happen overnight. It is something that has been brewing from 2007 when he came back to power until today when Daniel Ortega has become a brutal dictator, a murderous dictator of his people, 
of an unarmed population. And if I could just quickly tell you uh, how I see the making of a dictator in Nicaragua is that in 2007, when Daniel Ortega came back, he probably looked back at why he had lost the elections in, uh, in 1990, where he lost the election to Mrs. Chamorro, uh, uh, and who was a surprise not only for the United States, for the people of Nicaragua, and for all of those who have thought and believed that Daniel Ortega was absolutely going to win the election. I was in Nicaragua as an observer at the time. Well, there were four things that were important that happened in Nicaragua prior to 1990, which I think Daniel Ortega realized or thought that he probably needed to change in order to establish and to remain as president for life in Nicaragua. And one of them was during the period between 79 and 84, when he won the last election, uh, or 1990, Daniel Ortega has gone after the private sector and the wealthiest families in Nicaragua. Uh, the private sectors, there was something called El Cosep. Um, when he came back to Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega made a pact with the three richest families in Nicaragua and with El Cosep and gave them tax advantages at the expense of the poorest people. The other thing was that during his tenure before, he has gone after the Catholic Church. He has gone after Cardinal Obando y Bravo, who became cardinal because of Pope... Um, uh, because of the pub who didn't like at the time uh, Daniel de Sandinistas and decided to make him a, a cardinal. Um, and the cardinal came to ask for help from Daniel Ortega because one of his uh, uh, closest person uh, was going to go to jail and Daniel Ortega told him not to worry. And in exchange for the support of the Catholic Church, Daniel Ortega introduced legislation so that that, um, that we suddenly in Nicaragua, after many, many years, we had abortion. Uh, abortion was illegal, even in the cases of rape. The other thing that Daniel Ortega did is that before uh, that, he had gone after the, the right-wing political parties. And so he made a deal when he came to power uh, with the most corrupt politician in Nicaragua at the time, which was called Arnoldo Aleman. At the time, Arnoldo Aleman was in jail. He got him out of jail, made a pact with him that allowed him to control the National Assembly and to change uh, the, the, uh, the Constitution, and as well to dismantle all legal, all legal um, institutions in the country. Uh, as you can see, uh, and over the years, there were fraudulent elections in Nicaragua up to now, uh, but many people and many liberals and leftist people throughout the world had difficulties accepting that today Daniel Ortega is a killer who is going after the students, who is going after the, the poor farmers, who is going after journalists, who is going after workers, who is going after the church, and who is killing and in the last report of Amnesty International, it says that more than 300 people were killed and that nearly 3,000 were wounded. There are others who believe that the number of killings is 500. And there are many 
people who are in jail, including the students who have been fighting the battle against Daniel Ortega, who are unarmed. And I want to uh, clarify with you that no one in Nicaragua today is armed, and that the people of Nicaragua are determined to fight an, a, a peaceful struggle. Thank you very much. I think we heard the passion in your voice, uh, and clearly I would like to now move on to Sir Richard and ask the same question, and also perhaps uh, addressing the issue of the extent to which the world, the Western world, our world, has sat by and let these things happen uh, as if we're sleepwalking. Okay, can you hear me? Good. Um, okay, well, clearly there, there is a tide running against democracy. Um, it has something obviously to do with the financial crash of 2008. Uh, since then, we've seen the, the center of uh, the political spectrum hollowed out in one country after another. And, and that includes this, country's, where, this country, where the, the, the extremes of right and left have gained considerably in, in power. If you look at Germany, you can see that social democrats are basically disappearing um, after many, many decades of being really the second party and sometimes the, the first party uh, against the moderate conservatives. Um, there's a protest uh, has been spreading across the world. The same is true in America. People have been hit by uh, economic problems by serious economic crisis and they're reacting by protesting by rejecting the, the conventional middle. Secondly, I think there is a problem of um, a, a shallow uh, shallow rooted political culture of democracy. It's interesting to see that the, uh, the, the authoritarian right has made its greatest strides in Europe in countries like Poland or Hungary which uh, have only a very limited experience of democracy. Uh, both of them were ruled by authoritarian regimes between the, the wars. Um, they are uh, ruled by uh, pretty authoritarian regimes even before the First World War. They experienced communism after the Second World War. There's only a brief interlude of a more democratic system. Um, and uh, if you look at Germany, it's very interesting, the, the rise of the self-styled alternative for Germany, anti-immigrant party, uh, a far-right party, uh, is by far the strongest in the former East Germany, uh, which has not had the experience of most of Germany, the western central part uh, of democracy since 1945. Uh, so there's a shallow-rooted democracy. And then thirdly, of course, there is um, the problem of, of, of immigration um, that have been, uh, this is, seems to me to be caused mostly by civil unrest, disturbance, and civil war in the Middle East and by extreme poverty and also uh, dictatorial, authoritarian and sometimes warring uh, mutually hostile regimes in North Africa. And uh, that has, I think, uh, posed serious problems for uh, Europe in particular, where people are fleeing for a better or more peaceful or quieter life from absolutely desperate conditions. And that has also fueled, for example, the, particularly the Hungarian regime uh, of Viktor Orban. <clears throat> and then what I, what I want to say uh, is that we are not reliving the 1930s. This is not an era of uh, the rise of fascism again. There are tempting though it is to call these people, these dictators, fascists. I think we need to 
uh, understand that fascism in the 1920s in Italy, the 1930s in Germany and other countries in Europe was a product above all of the First World War. And then, and here is a certain parallel or echo, the massive depression of the early 1930s following the crash of 1929 in the States. But uh, the fascism did not gain majority in uh, a free election. Hitler only got 37% of the vote in the free election, the most he ever got. Um, Mussolini and Hitler both came to power by sort of political intrigues, and above all, it's easy to forget this, by the use of mass violence. Um, that's what really distinguishes classical fascism from contemporary regimes. Uh, you know, I don't see Donald Trump, who is a man of undoubted authoritarian instincts and basically does not um, does not like democracy. I don't see him putting 200,000 stormtroopers onto the streets as Hitler did before Hitler uh, achieved power. Or squadristi as in Italy in the early 1920s before Mussolini achieved power. And the really, really disturbing thing about contemporary um, uh, authoritarian regimes in Europe is that they have uh, the support of the mass of the people. Victor Orban is enormously popular. Uh, the, the, uh, he wins elections by landslides. People in Hungary don't seem to care about the destruction of civil liberties, um, the corruption of the regime, because dictatorship is always and always becomes corrupt. That's true of the Nazis, as well as Mussolini and so on. Uh, they don't seem to care in Poland about the um, destruction of an independent uh, judiciary. Uh, it's, that's, the most, that's the biggest difference in a way. It's very, very disturbing. The modern dictators, contemporary dictators, don't seem to need violence to establish power. What they do when they get into power is then, of course, use the violence, the potential for violence of the state to cement and, and further extend their power. But there's a difference. And I think we need to think very carefully about how we can combat uh, the, this phenomenon of popular anti-democratic movements. And you can't fight the battles of the 21st century with the weapons uh, that might perhaps have been used, or should perhaps have been used in the 1920s and 30s. Oh, thank you very much. Perhaps uh, Andras could address this issue uh, that we've touched on slightly about the use of, of power uh, and state power against the population that in turn produces massive exits of people. I'm thinking particularly of Syria. Um, and the impact, but also Venezuela, and, and the impact that that has on neighboring countries in, in terms of spreading xenophobia and populism. First thing I'd like to say is that uh, implicit in the question is a statement that merits making an underline. In fact, we are seeing a regression toward dictatorship. And Bianca is absolutely right. Often, far too often, we've looked the other way, particularly when the budding dictator is of the left uh, and we have failed to recognize really nasty authoritarian tendencies in places like Venezuela or like Nicaragua. Uh, Venezuela, parenthetically, you're absolutely right, is not simply in the midst of a political crisis, it's in the midst uh, of a humanitarian crisis. Uh, nobody quite knows, but about four million Venezuelans have left the country, one million more or less happen to be in Colombia. Uh, my own country, Chile, has received nearly half a million. Uh, and of course, for a country that used to be the richest in Latin America, the fact that people are going hungry, that there are no medicines in hospitals, is absolutely appalling, absolutely unacceptable. 
Now, for people of my generation, you know, I, I was in university when we were fighting to bring Pinochet down. The greatest achievement, of course, was the return of democracy um, to much of Latin America in the 1980s. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the return of democracy or the creation of new democracies in, in Eastern Europe uh, uh, and parts of the former Soviet Union. Um, the fall of the Marcos dictatorship uh, in uh, the Philippines, of course. Uh, probably the students here, you know, certainly hadn't been born back then. But for my generation, what, one of the things we marched about in university was precisely uh, celebrating uh, that Imelda Marcos had lost her 2,000 pairs of shoes. Um, uh, so the fact that the world was moving in one direction for many years and now seems to be moving in exactly the opposite direction is, is a sad fact and one that merits analysis. Why is it happening? I'm not sure I can provide one pithy answer, but let me try to provide a couple of clues. First of all, and here I am going to disagree with the speaker who preceded me, and of course it is a risky business to disagree with a Regis professor of history, but um, um, uh, I don't think that economics is primarily to blame. Of course, the financial crisis in the UK and in the US was a very, very nasty business. I was the Minister of Finance of Chile at the time, and I remember simply sitting in front of a Bloomberg screen, looking at the thing go down and down and down, and wondering, why did I take this job? Um, uh, and the fact that uh, we're still here, in fact, uh, is a testimony of, to the bold leadership of a few people, like Barack Obama, who did lots of unorthodox things. But still, the consequences were very bad. However, the consequences were bad in certain places, but not all. And today we're seeing the rise of dictatorship in places where the financial crisis did not happen. Um, Poland is a classic example. You know, when I was a minister, I looked at countries with a similar per capita income, and Poland and Chile have exactly the same per capita income, and I was very upset that the Poles were not having a recession. Poland did not have a recession, nor did Hungary, by the way. If you look at the current trend toward authoritarian politics, we're seeing it in countries where per capita income today is probably three or four times what it was 25 years ago. Brazil, uh, 10 days ago, was on the verge of electing, and is today on the verge of electing a complete lunatic of the far right, who almost surely will become president of Brazil. Well, Brazil did have a recession over the last three or four years, but the average wage in Brazil measured any way you wish, is three times what it was in 1990. And the income distribution uh, has, in fact, improved slightly. Of course, it remains very bad, but it has improved over the last 25 years. Uh, the Philippines is another example. The Philippines is actually a very fast-growing economy. Unequal, yes, uh, but the inequality has been there forever. What, what didn't used to be there is the growth. Um, so, as an economist, I am not entirely comfortable with the notion that, uh, that the economy is behind this. Uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern Germany, um, you mentioned East and West. Well, clearly the residents of Eastern Germany today live vastly better than they did uh, before unification. And nonetheless, it is in Eastern Germany where you see the real support for right-wing authoritarian politics. So if it isn't economics, what is it? Um, let me throw a couple of hypotheses. Uh, I think the phenomenon is primarily political. Uh, what all of these elections of right-wing populists or left-wing populists have in common is a very strong anti-establishment vote. So 
the failure, I suspect, or one failure, is the failure of political establishments across the globe, which sometimes have stayed on too long, uh, which have remained... Uh, disconnected and out of touch with voting populations. Uh, if you ask a Latin American uh, who's not of my generation, but who's, you know, of people who are 25 today, why are they voting for the extreme left and the extreme right? One common answer is, for my lifetime, you know, for the last 25 years, I turn on the TV, I see the same people. Um, and of course, as in Nicaragua, sometimes the same people are in government, sometimes they're in business, sometimes they're, you know, they're bishops, um, they all go to the same cocktail parties. Uh, and as a result, I think there is a failure of, um, call it democratic renewal, which is to some extent behind this. Second political idea. Um, I think one always has to be alert to the failures of democracy. Um, uh, I, been, I found myself rereading a beautiful essay by the Italian political theorist Norberto Bobbio uh, called The Broken Promises of Democracy. And one, you can be, as I am, as we all are, ardent advocates of liberal democracy, but at the same time one must recognize that sometimes, often, our democracies fall short of the promises we make people. That's Bobbio's point. Uh, and at a time when it's very easy to become aware of the latest um, screw-up, you know, we, we, we all have cell phones, uh, this bubbled up, uh, or this, you know, this, this frustration which didn't before bubble up now comes to the surface very quickly and can lead to authoritarian uh, voting. So could I just break in yes. here and, and just move this around to a, a, something that would follow on from that? And I'd like to ask Bianca, if I may, is it possible if in these new or these resurgent regimes that there could be such a thing as a benevolent dictator, such as some people thought we once saw in Singapore, in countries where people make a social pact to trade their rights in return for prosperity and peace? First of all, is it on? I'd like to go back, if I may, to your question. I think that one of the most important things, it may not be economics, but I am not sure that I totally agree with that, but it's certainly the idea of inequality. Because even in countries such as America, one of the reasons I feel that Donald Trump was elected was because of inequality and the feeling of a great um, number of the people in America who felt that they were left behind and that they were forgotten, the forgotten ones that voted for Donald Trump. And uh, if, we, if we are another of the important issues I think that we need to see is, I see that in Nicaragua, is that when people Daniel Ortega is accusing the population that this is a right-wing conspiracy. And we are either saying that it's a left-wing conspiracy or a right-wing conspiracy. In fact, the, the appraisal, the peaceful appraisal in Nicaragua is neither left or right. It's just the people who have said enough of a dictator. And then if we look at, uh, at Brazil, Yes, their per capita income have increased, but the poorest in Brazil continue to be poor 
as they used to be, and the abuses of power, and the persecution of indigenous peoples, and the marginalized population continues in Brazil. So I think that what is quite surprising, and I think we should think carefully and try to understand why, is that there is so much in common between the extreme right and the supposed extreme left. And what is the common denominator is that both of them are abusing their power and that we are having dictators on both sides, either on the left or on the right. And, and going back, should we ever um, accept, um, uh, what was the phrase that you used? Benevolent dictators. Benevolent dictators, never. We should never, under any circumstances, trade human right for, um, for uh, a better... Uh, situation, economic situation, regardless of who it is, because I think that all it will do is that it will lead us to have dictators such as the one we have in Latin America, or um, or the kind of benevolent dictators that we see in other parts, who will one day become. Uh, I, I I never forget when I went on a on a fact finding mission to uh, to Syria with a group of professors from the United States. I was the only one who was not a, 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 an American. And they were impressed by Assad because Assad spoke perfect English. And this is not just American, British as well. I have been in fact-finding missions with the fact that someone, a, a, a leader or a dictator speak perfect English and seems to be quite reasonable, makes them believe that this is a reformer. Uh, I mean, this is how the conclusion that my friends and colleagues when we came out was that they were a reformer. We have to begin to understand the signs that tell us that a man in power that is abusing power is becoming a dictator. Uh, and the examples are Assad, a war criminal, or a dictator, a murderer dictator in Nicaragua or in Venezuela, or even in Cuba. So it is up to us, the international community, but it's as well the media. I think that the media plays a very important role because the media does not report the facts. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to dispute that because <laughs> I think an awful lot of journalists put themselves in the way of, of, of serious harm. I don't know if oh, you no, saw the film I'm not the saying other day all. about Marie I, Colvin. I, I, I totally but, agree with you, and they are, they are, they are, and I have great respect <laughs> for journalists and journalists who are today in, 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 that are putting themselves in, in, in terrible situations where they are being murdered, and we have the example of what happened to this great journalist who was murdered in Syria, in, in, mm. in, Marie, in, Marie Colvin. in, in Turkey, Turkey. And, but it's not the only one. I mean, it's throughout the world, but they are. But there is a different media, which is a media that does um, not provide the facts uh, okay. beside the reporters who are risking their lives. But since we have mentioned Saudi Arabia, perhaps I could ask um, Sir Richard, where do we go in terms of this question of impunity, the, the, these dictatorships, uh, monarchies, uh, people who get away with murder, quite literally, are allowed to do so for economic or, or geopolitical or whatever reasons. Is there anything that should be done differently? Uh, well, uh, let me first of all come back and say that you didn't actually um, listen properly. I did not say that... <laughs> I did not say 
that you can explain it all by economics, certainly not by per capita GDP. Um, that I induced a number of different possible explanations. Um, clearly, Hungary did not suffer particularly badly, to take one example, from the recession. But uh, there was a, a crisis of expectations. The previous government, the socialist government, was felt to have made a mess of things. People should have continued getting, getting better. So it's, it's a much more complicated... You can't just translate per capita GDP into attitudes of democracy. It's really crude. Um, uh, secondly, I want to comment on uh, what Bianca said about the media, which I think is extremely important. Of course, we make an exception for the New York Times. Obviously, that goes without saying. Of course, thank you very much. But, but uh, what is, you know, if you're looking for kind of coincidences to start trying to explain the crisis of democracy, um, another coincidence is this has happened at the same time as the rise of the internet and social media. There's an almost exact chronological um, uh, uh, parallel there. Uh, now, again, with, you know, how it's affected is a, is a difficult problem. Now, all I say is that the traditional gatekeepers, gatekeepers of opinion formation, newspaper editors, um, radio, uh, television uh, editors, news, all the rest of that, they've been bypassed by a completely uncontrolled uh, explosion of opinion uh, in which anyone can say whatever they like and anyone's opinion is as good as anybody else's. Uh, and that has found its way particularly dangerously into, uh, into politics. So now, and I think it's, a, it's at least in our own times, it's a new phenomenon where you have the President of the United States who lies openly and blatantly many times a day and simply doesn't care about it. And what this has uh, had the effect, I think, of... If you have the government saying, for example, that climate change is a hoax, or now I think he's slightly modified his position, but still doesn't believe that in, he doesn't care now, I think, about climate change, even if it's happening. Uh, that confuses people. If you have some of the authority, the government, insofar as it's believed, uh, starts to erode opinion, fact-based, evidence-based, science-based opinion. And that seems to me to be extremely dangerous. And you also have conspiracy theories spreading across the Internet, uh, proliferating and, and reaching their way into the mainstream. You see it, for example, in, in this country, um, uh, you know, uh, particularly in the more extreme supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, who say that accusing him of anti-Semitism is a conspiracy by the Blairites to get rid of him, or uh, Lem McCluskey saying it's all the MI5 is behind attempts to overthrow him, and so on and so forth. Uh, Boris Johnson is not really Islamophobic, it's all a plot by people who want to stop him to get becoming Prime Minister, and so on and so forth. And that, again, uh, is, a, is a way in which opinion formation is eroding uh, democracy because it's not fact-based and not evidence-based. Now I've forgotten your question. Uh -huh. so. <laughs> the, the, the question is the question of impunity and whether, yes. the, whether well, again, dictators can exist without yeah. this kind of outside Im impunity. shield. Impunity. Well, um, there's a very important, important innovation in, in the 90s, the formation of the International Criminal Court. Uh, and that began the process of indicting uh, dictators who uh, had committed murders, crimes, crimes, uh, um, corruption on a vast scale uh, and so on uh, criminal, criminal heads of state and by indicting them it then made some progress in banning them from countries that belonged to 
the, uh, subscribed to the International Criminal Court. Um, but that proved to be a very slow, very difficult process. It was a problem because it was easier to do with African, um, particularly sub-Saharan African uh, uh, dictators, and, and that it began to look like some kind of discrimination. I think it's just because it was easier. Uh, and that's now running into deep problems. So... Again, President Trump has said uh, that he doesn't want to continue to belong to the, uh, you know, to subscribe to the International Criminal Thought, uh, Court. He, uh, he wants to withdraw from it. Whether he will, I don't know. But it's now becoming much more difficult. I mean, I talked to the, uh, the then chairman of the, of the, the head of the International Criminal Court about, about five or six years ago, and he was extremely optimistic. It will spread across, across the world. Uh, dictators will no longer leave their own countries for fear of being arrested. But again, we've seen that uh, that's been a, a, a deeply problematical. So that's one way, I think, in which we can continue to try and, and, and overcome uh, and deal with dictators. But it's a going to be a long, long struggle. At the moment, it's stuck, I think. Well, perhaps I could ask Andrews to come back to this question uh, of what should the outside world do? I don't think that the international courts have been particularly successful I think the social media aspect of it, we saw an explosion of social media in Syria telling us in fine detail what was going on on the ground the appalling tragedies of cities like Homs and, and Aleppo nothing happened, there was no realistic resistance uh, the, the Russian uh, Putin came in and helped the dictator and turned the battle in his favor and again there was nothing happening from the other side, a half-hearted military effort, so what, what is left in the quiver of western societies to resist the rise of authoritarian governments I think the honest answer is not a lot. Um, you know, we've tried one thing, which sometimes works, often doesn't. It's called armed intervention. Uh, we can, of course, try moral suasion, which sometimes has some effect, but not a lot. Uh, I think the honest answer is that, you know, in a situation like Syria, the West today is really without many tools. Um, and that's why, we, you know, the governments tend to look the other way, which is exactly what they're doing today. Um, I did want to say one thing about inequality, though. Um, uh, and believe me, it is not that I want to defend economists. You know, among economists, I tend to be very critical of my own colleagues. But I think we should not fall into a comfortable but eventually misleading trap. Uh, inequality is a terrible thing. A country like Brazil is hugely unequal. The U.S. has become more unequal. So this is not a statement about inequality. However, however... If we're looking for one cause that fits around the world, inequality cannot be it because we're seeing authoritarianism rising in countries in which inequality is rising, like the U.S., and countries in which inequality is falling, like Poland um, or Brazil, for that matter. So it is very comfortable and it is very fashionable to say inequality is behind the rise of authoritarianism. It just happens to be analytically wrong. The other thing that makes me suspicious of that view is the following, that if in fact there were inequality, we would be seeing the rise of left-wing populism, and what we're seeing is the rise of right-wing populism. 
So I am perfectly willing to, to believe that American voters are uninformed, they don't read the New York Times, but if I think, as an American voter, I am not actually, lived in the U.S. for 18 years, never got the right to vote, um, um, if I think that inequality is the prime problem, um, I would have to be really ill-advised to vote for Donald Trump, who's clearly making inequality much worse. So there must be something else going on that is causing the rise of these right-wing populist types who are very authoritarian and whose policies are very likely to make inequality much worse. So um, I, I, I want to invite you to just dig a little deeper because sometimes it is easy to fall back on things that are in fact appealing that seem to match our sort of preconceptions but which in fact are not going to give us the answer. And we need an answer because the problem is really terrible indeed. Well, does that mean that, uh, Bianca, is there a culture of, of dictatorship that gets inherited, gets passed on from Somoza to Ortega or from um, Saddam Hussein to ISIS? Is it that, that something happens, that that's what people are used to, that is how governance is seen? Can it be avoided? I think that they are countries that have a tradition of a democracy, such as Europe and other countries, not only Europe. They are countries like in Latin America where we don't have in many countries a tradition of a democracy and there is easy for a Daniel Ortega to become like Somoza. We have not really known, we do not have a tradition of democracy. The same could be said for Venezuela. But I I'd like to go back to this issue of inequality um, because I still believe that inequality plays an important role in the fact that people uh, elect individuals that are populist. And it doesn't, what I was trying to say before, and I think we need to think is, what is it that some of those populists and some of those dictators on the right have in common with dictators on the left. And it has something to do with people's inequality that are persuaded, that believe that their lives will improve by electing or not electing, because in many of these cases, they are not people that, that are properly elected. There is one more thing that I want to um, address, which is the issue of, uh, of social media. Just as we have great journalists, and we have terrible media, even in this country, and we know the media that I'm referring to, and we know why today people are finding out that they were misled about Brexit, because you have some of the media who make them believe and repeated the lies and misleading messages that the government was putting out uh, for Brexit. But as well, I will defend the people in social media. I think that we have to look at social media in more depth. Yes, it has a dangerous aspect to social media. But no, as well, on the other hand, it had great people who are working on social media, who are denouncing the, the, the false information that the media is putting out, there are people in remote places in the world who are denouncing human rights uh, violations and atrocities that are taking place that otherwise will not be known. It is true that 
Uh, for example, in Syria, as you said, we saw everything that was happening and the international community did nothing to help them. But it more than whether it was useful that social media and that people on social media were denouncing what was happening in this country. It was the fact that the international community has become ineffective and that the international community is not doing anything to stop atrocities in Syria, atrocities in Venezuela or in Nicaragua or in, 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 in other countries of the world. Uh, I think that is the inefficiency and the indifference that exists today in the world, that we do not have an international community that feels that they can do something because we are all very concerned about intervention. Thank you very much. I think maybe at this point we should hand, uh, see what kind of questions uh, our audience yeah, wants to ask. We have, we have Eric a, a big audience and we want to give you a chance to. So please introduce yourself, be brief, questions. Over there. <clears throat> Hello. Uh, uh, my name is Rupani. I'm alumni. Uh, I'm just uh, astonished, you see, that nobody has pointed out, see, that Americans have been responsible for sustaining dictatorship. Not only now, even in the time of uh, previous, if you look at some of the president, the sustaining the dictatorship in the uh, case of the South America in now the, in case of the case of uh, uh, Middle East, it's sustaining the... And the talking about the Syria, if you look what they did to Libya and to Iraq as such, if the intervention there with you know, the Syria, now they're talking about attacking Iran, you see. Now in this case, I can't understand for life of me why people, you see, talk about Syria, because Syria, the, some of the, uh, the uh, ISIS were introduced by Americans and the uh, South, uh, South Arabia and Gulf state as such. So I can't see the logic of, uh, I remember the, uh, 30 years ago, this was Kissinger. Anyone in Middle East who does not to our line, they'll be destroyed and it is coming past. I'm not sure what the question was, but we will we'll get back to that. So, uh, ne 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 next one. Yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name's Michael Moore. My question relates to this notion that crowds and feelings connect with a political story, a narrative. And if we look at those processes and recognize that in conditions of political deterioration, either economic or through um, various measures that force through inequality, make it more visible, isn't part of the challenge, here's the question, around the way in which feelings, the way in which autocratic leaders can resonate and be seen as the receptacle and receiver for those feelings, isn't that uh, the core of this debate, right at the center of dictatorship. Okay. I'll, I'll take one more question and we'll... we'll... Right. Yes, my name is Hugh Edwards. I just wonder whether the liberals have been pretty feeble in stating their case. 
uh, Hillary Clinton, Franklin's campaign in 2016, I thought, was pretty, pretty abysmal. What we heard from Hillary was, was a long lectures on Democratic Party policy. And I remember one, one of the debates in, in West Virginia. She gave us a long... What's, what's the question, sir? Don't you think that um, liberal on, on the centre-left have to be much better at stating their case and attacking their enemies? Hillary Clinton just didn't do it. Okay, should we let first round of, of questions and answers here? Anyone wants to? I'll, I'll, I would love to say something about. Okay. You want to go first? No, no. Yeah. I want to combine question two and question three because I think they are the same question. You asked, "Have they been feeble?" Yes. Have we been feeble? Yes. Why? Because I think we have mistaken or we have misunderstood uh, the basic moving forces behind politics. Uh, there, was a, there was a headline, uh, uh, or the title of a column, I think it was in the FT a couple of days ago. Actually, it was Project Syndicate, which, which sort of summarized the problem. Of an, an eminent French statesman said, we have to find you know, a way to push the politics of reason, liberals, against the politics of emotions, namely populists. If you phrase it that way, we liberals are going to lose every time every time because we all, even highly educated people like the people in this room, we are moved by emotions, we are moved by narratives, and we are moved by stories. Uh, and I think many people advocating centrist, reformist, moderate uh, policies, and I have found myself in this position again and again and again. You know, I, I ran for office in Chile, I was a centrist candidate, there was somebody on my left, somebody on my right, um, and I, fought, I fell into that trap. You know, you, know, you would have be asked, well, how, do you, you know, how do you feel about bad pensions? And the Hillary's in the world, and I'm one of them, uh, uh, replied with a highly complex policy explanation of the 17.5 steps we had to take to improve pensions. Whereas the person on the right or the person on the left would simply express outrage. You know, how do we fix it? I have no idea, but it's terrible. Um, so yes, I think we need a politics of the center that is feeble, I mean, that is less feeble, that is not, that is not scared, um, that was a Freudian slip, maybe, um, I don't know, um, that is less feeble and that is not scared to traffic and emotion. You know, the great liberal politicians did it. Go read, you know, the Gettysburg Address by Lincoln. It's, very liberal, very good, and terribly emotion. Uh, very, very emotional. So I think we have to relearn that lesson that we simply forgot along the way. Yeah, um, I will think of Gladstone or think of Lloyd George. I mean, a lot of plenty. Of, and I do feel that we have a political elite in this country in particular that is just really second rate. Um, the, the, there's no outstanding figure at all. Uh, and it's deeply, deeply depressing. Um, just as depressing is that the fact that um, intervention, international intervention, almost always backfires. You know, you might intervene in Libya to overthrow a, a tyrannical, murderous and, and insane regime. What's the result? You might intervene in, in Iraq, the same result, an absolutely terrible mess. So 
I, I don't think international intervention on moral grounds in order to for, achieve regime change, where there's a wicked regime, uh, is, is the answer. Um, as far as uh, why people vote for dictators goes, I think you have to look more, more deeply into inequality than simply doing sums about, who's, about average earnings and incomes and so on. Uh, you can look, at, for example, at the, Mary, at the people who voted for Trump and a, a quite a large proportion are from the white, traditional white, late manual working class whose standards of living have been declining, whose um, uh, life expectancy of birth has been declining. It's a very distinctive kind of group. Um, it's a very, uh, and of course, who feel uh, race, racially disadvantaged. I mean, uh, they, it, the race comes into it. It's not just class, it's not just inequality, and the similar kind of thing in. Uh, resentments against uh, uh, or, or the kind of anti-immigration feelings. Um, the uh, <laughs> thank God it's not mine. Um, the <laughs> the um, uh, so if you look at, at the Brexit voters in, in, in this country, you tend, I'm sorry to say, to be older. Uh, and you know the Brexit vote uh, corresponds most. What does it, corris- what does it correlate most most uh, strikingly with? It's not income. It's not inequality. It's actually support for the death penalty. Uh, that is that's the, the, by far the strongest correlation. So I agree. Politics. It's it's a mixture of all these different things. It's politics. I do believe that the internet has been a baleful, on the whole, negative um, uh, influence as well on the quality and standard of political discourse. It's unleashed all kinds of furies and demons of racism, abuse and hatred. I mean, just to say, give you one personal example, I was a principal expert witness in 2000 in the, uh, uh, for the defense in the case brought by David Irving over allegations made against him of Holocaust denial. I had a whole two huge bulging files full of hate mail from anti-Semites, racists and fascists and others. I just put it away in, in my files, uh, awaiting the attention of my biographer, should she ever turn up. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it'll all be out there on the internet, and that has a deeply corrosive effect on the standards and quality of political discourse. Um, I think that if I was to answer some of your questions, I think that we should look back beyond the United States. We should look back at history. And we should look back at neocolonialism and colonialism, what it has done. Because on the countries that you have mentioned, like um, Iran and Libya, and let's not forget about the partitions that were done by colonial powers that led to many of the wars we had then. So we can not only blame the United States I think we need to look beyond the United States and look at the role as well that Europeans have played. I think with regards to us, liberals, as we say, I think that we should, uh, instead of only being liberal, we should adhere to the rule of law and aspire that countries adhere to the rule of law and to respect for human rights. I think that the issue of human rights is very important. Are we prepared to give up human rights? for uh, financial benefits, as many in the United States and in other countries would like to do. I think that we need to rethink and understand what is it that we are all doing wrong. What is it, and I come back to the same thing, what is there in common between the extreme right and the extreme left? You know, what is it that, why is it 
that people want populist government? Why is it that Caudillos, because Donald Trump in some way is a form of Caudillos like in Latin America. So it is not only us Latin Americans and other countries that want that kind of president. So I think that is a time for us to do a soul searching to understand and to address the issue of neo-colonialism and not only point fingers to the US. Yes, the US has a terrible, you know, terrible, you know, terrible history in Latin America, but Daniel Ortega was not really put there by the United States. Okay, next round of questions here. I want to have a woman first. No, sorry, in the back there. Hi. Um, so I'd like to... Please introduce yourself. Oh, I'm Joanna. Okay, uh, welcome. <laughs> I happen to work in a social media company, actually. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but actually, my question is not related to social media. It's related to education. So I'd like to understand what's your view of the role that education has on all of this. Because actually, the lack of education for a big part of society has suited many governments so far. But the problem is that when you have a large part of the, of the society uneducated, it can go either way. And it, it's related to social media in a sense because then you just lack judgment to understand what's reality and what's not and what's true and what's not and everything else. So should we actually, should political parties adapt their speeches to the uneducated population, let's say, uh, or sh actually should we work the population so that they become more educated and more um, thoughtful when voting. Okay, so is, is education the answer? Take right next to you. Uh, Martin, master student here. I would like to bring another factor into the discussion, and that is uh, the word I've missed so far in the discussion, uh, globalization. Might this whole uh, backlash of democracy not also be a result of uh, a backlash against ever eroding borders and thereby sort of the question that comes at the surface of what our identity is and, and who we are as a consequence of that. What do you think of that? So get back control. So unless someone right next to you there. Um, I'm just curious about um, what we seem to be looking for something or someone to blame. My question is, do we try to put the blame on colonization, on the United States, on this and that, instead of concentrating and find a solution? So, so this is, so we have three questions. Is the answer education, What's it, which is a possible solution, or? Anyone? Yeah, education is obviously very important. Um, if you look at the vote for Brexit, this country, again, it correlates quite uh, well negatively with the level of education. So the great majority of university graduates um, voted for Remain. The great majority of those who did not go to university uh, voted uh, to leave. And uh, the lack of education, I think, uh, was a factor in um, making them believe the lies that they were told by the, by the Brexiteers. Um, and that, of course, correlates with age. So in my generation, 
seven to ten percent of us went to university. Twenty-five-year-olds, uh, about forty percent went to university. That's a very strong correlation. Education, I think, is extremely important. There's no, uh, it's no accident in a way that that extreme right-wing politicians or strongly right-wing politicians um, are attacking education. That in, in the United States, for example, you have the re Republican right is, is fiercely attacking the humanities in the universities, for example, and universities in general, which they see as a hotbed of a kind of liberalism that they, that they detest. So what about uh, globalization? Anyone want to take that? Is this a result of... It is obvious that globalization has played a role. Uh, we cannot deny that. And I think that there is another issue, which is, uh, I don't know what it will play in what we're talking about, but young people are more conscious than the older generation of the impending threat of climate change and which in some ways is a result in many ways on globalization and on our use of, of fuels, uh, on the power of companies and corporations that override the rights of people. I think that all of that plays a part. Um, I don't know really, I don't want to be an expert on that, but all I can tell you going back to social media, is that I am on Twitter and on all social media at Bianca Jagger, and I, I ask you to follow me. <laughs> that was a, a blessing. Can but, you follow but, me as well, please? <laughs> I know I won't have a, a hundredth of uh, the followers that you have, Bianca. On um, colonialism... I think uh, populism is about col uh, colonialism, but going in the other direction. You know, we in Latin America, Bianca will know this as well as I do, we invented populism. I mean, you know, compared to people like Perón in, uh, in Argentina or Vargas in Brazil, Donald Trump is a mere apprentice. Um, so this is, believe me, this is a non-traditional Latin American export. neocolonialism upside down. Uh, on education, it is clear that people with less education are more likely to, as you said, believe the lies of the Brexiteers. I buy that. But let me be the boring social scientist for 30 seconds. Uh, what we teach our students is that in order to explain a change, we need to come up with a variable that has moved in the right direction. Across the world over the last quarter century, years of schooling have gone up. People have more schooling, not less schooling. So I'm reluctant to believe that you get more schooling and therefore you get more populism. Uh, something else must be going on, and I don't quite know what it is. Globalization, I think you're absolutely right, has made a difference, um, but it is important to, to figure out what channel, because globalization is trade, globalization is media, globalization is culture, what kind of globalization we're talking about. I think you uttered the right, the right word, identity. I think uh, politics is very much linked to identity, and when identities are threatened, uh, there's a backlash. Um, which takes me finally to the, if I can say one more thing about uh, what liberals ought to do. I think we liberals have tended to be very skeptical and we like to snigger at national identities. Uh, and I think this was a profound political mistake because nationalism is ugly, patriotism need not be. 
and skillful democratic leaders know how to be patriots without being ugly nationalists. I think Emmanuel Macron in France is doing exactly that. And so I, I, I would put it to you that we need a new, liberal, open-minded kind of patriotism because to do politics without national identities is to do politics that is going to fail and I'm afraid that's happened to a lot of leaders around the world. Mm. Uh, I'd buy that. I think we saw... Um, uh, one kind of national identity in this country during the 2012 Olympics, uh, a liberal, open, uh, multicultural, and, and so on. And it's been a deep shock to see that um, being reversed in, in recent years. Maybe that was just London, I don't know. Um, but I, I mean, I see the issue I have with you is that you keep dealing with these huge global generalizations. So the world is getting more educated, therefore you can't explain. Uh, doesn't, education has got nothing to do with the, uh, the rise of populism, or very little. So that's, not, that's, not the, that's not the case. That's one of the issue I have with, uh, with, with that kind of social science. You must look in more detail. You must look at the, uh, a much more detailed kind of um, correlations with, with, with things. And finally, to ask a question, the back, answer the question at the back. The reason we're talking about causes is because you can't do anything about it unless you know what the causes are, unless you can agree on it. You can't just go into action without knowing why this rise of populism and authoritarianism is going on. I think that if there is something that we have not said since we said so much is uncertainty. Is the uncertainty that young people feel towards climate change, or young and old, uncertainty about losing their jobs, uncertainty about what Brexit will bring, uncertainty about having a government like Daniel, like Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, or like Donald Trump in America, uncertainty plays an important role. I, I just wanted to uh, chip in, uh, just to say that we should draw a distinction, really, between the theme of this discussion, which is dictatorships and the rise of the right and populist right-wing rulers in the Western world, which is a separate thing. I was spent a lot of time in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. I remember some of the vintage dictators there, uh, the cult of the personality. I've been to Babylon in Iraq to see a, sta a poster 60 feet tall of, of Saddam Hussein pretending to be Nebuchadnezzar. I think though that era is perhaps gone and what we're addressing now is not really dictatorships in the traditional way uh, which, which would be what Mao Zedong, Stalin, Adolf Hitler but this is a newer phenomenon and one which all of these elements come into play with and I think uncertainty is, is part of the result of globalization. We don't know the value of things anymore. Goods change in value every day according to availability and there is a, a real sense that the, the world is shifting and we no longer have any control over it. So I think the, but the phenomena of where dictatorial regimes continue to do real harm is not there. It's in the regimes that supply weapons. It's the regimes that go to war uh, and give impunity to their local proxies. More questions? So one here. Behind, behind. Yeah. Thank you so much for this very interesting uh, discussion. So can I just float back the idea of this glorified idea of democracy and the over, how we overrate democracy? In many cases... Um, we're talking about people who are, not, who, are, who are shying away from going to the vote. There's less participation in voting because they feel disenfranchised. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place in many cases because the alternatives in front of them are 
simply not adequate and they don't reflect what they believe in. And then you, and then you come and separate the human rights from the economic rights. And you take the example of Syria and, and Libya and Iraq as violations of human rights. But in fact, people of these countries reminisce for the days where the dictator gave them electricity, gave them education, gave them uh, the, their basic services. I am not endorsing dictatorship by any means, but do we also need to rethink democracy? Hi, um, I'm Jacobo from Venezuela, and I would, I would like to ask a question uh, based on dictatorship in Venezuela. Um, so we've talked about governance and the International Criminal Court. Um, there's been some developments, interesting developments about Venezuela and that institution, but also talks we, we have, well, you have been discussing about um, military intervention. So those, t those two elements that we have in in governance, but on one side, it doesn't seem right that we go to for a military intervention for all of these horrible um, experiences that they have in the past. But the ICC has delayed the opportunity to make a change on the regime in Venezuela. So, what do you think is the middle ground that we have to follow to find solutions for something as? Well, that humanitarian crisis in, in Venezuela. Okay. Back there. In the middle. Hello, um, I'm Angela, and I just wanted to shift the focus a bit on to dictatorships in Asia. And my question is that whether or not you would think, um, for example, economic success in um, dictatorships in China is likely to um, inspire new um, modernized forms of dictatorial regimes in the neighboring countries, for example, in North Korea. And thank you. Okay, so three, three questions. Uh, one on Venezuela. The International Criminal Court doesn't work. Uh, probably an intervention. Some have argued for military intervention. Is that, what's the middle ground? Yeah. I think um, I said earlier that in Syria there are not that many tools. I think that statement does not apply to Venezuela. The international community has been very, to use the fashionable term, feeble again uh, on Venezuela. Uh, the Latin American countries were very slow to recognize that Venezuela has in fact become dictatorial. The Organization of American States under current leadership has been quite firm. Uh, the man who ran the OAS beforehand fudged the issue entirely. Uh, he's a fellow Chilean, so I can say that with full confidence. He did a terrible job. Um, um, uh, and last but not least, before we talk about military intervention, what have you, there's a small little thing called oil. Um, I think that if the United States and Latin America were really truly serious about removing the Venezuelan dictator, they would impose sanctions related to oil. Uh, uh, nobody's been willing to do that, but I think that is one lever that is very powerful that remains to be used. Um, with regards to what you say, are we glorifying democracy? Now, we're not glorifying democracy. What we are doing is that we are not responsible. We talk about democracy and about um, 
countries that should adhere to the rule of law, but we have people in those countries who don't understand that in order for us to really have a democracy that function, we need to vote. And recently when I was in America and I was watching uh, the covenant hearing and I was thinking and I was outraged and appalled at thinking what was happening in America, but as well I was thinking about all the women in America that didn't vote that didn't come out to vote against Donald Trump. We have to understand that yes, we want to have a democracy in all of those countries, but as well, we have to understand that we have a responsibility in order for those democracies to work. Uh, and, and that is a really important, it goes not just in America, it goes here in the UK. I mean, we are about to make one of the greatest mistake that this country has ever made, Brexit. And why? Because many did not go out and vote. And, and why? Because many did not get informed about what Brexit uh, meant and the consequences for our country. So with regard to Venezuela and with regards to the ICC, the ICC is a wonderful creation. Unfortunately, it has not been applied to the countries that should be applied, and that as well they are countries who are not signatures of the ICC, Nicaragua, for example, of the U.S. You know, that yes, you have Venezuela is a signature of the ICC and could be held accountable. But as it was said before, we had the countries in Africa who were the first one that were brought to justice, the leaders from those countries. As well, I will say that we were dragging ourselves in Latin America because we felt as liberals that we could not really condemn uh, the Venezuelan government. And it is a big difference between Chavez and Maduro. Maduro is a ruthless imbecile who is ruling the country, a dangerous individual that should be stopped. And, and, and many in Latin America felt that Luis Almagro, who is the president of the OAS, was really targeting Venezuela and targeting Nicaragua. Um, although, I must say, the Latin American countries have woken up and are condemning what is happening in Venezuela, are condemning what is happening in Nicaragua, and in the last vote, there were 21, people, 21 countries who did it. What about the question of the Asian experience and, and particularly the idea that there's new technologies and new ways of controlling and, and trying to influence people that uh, changes the nature of dictatorship. Um, that's a very difficult question. I mean, uh, I think we have to try and get away from kind of one-size-fits-all uh, explanations. For one thing, it's quite clear that the nature of authoritarian regimes, dictatorships, uh, do, does vary from one part of the world to another. I mean, in China, you have uh, a clearly an authoritarian political system with a, 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 a liberalized uh, economic system. Uh, so that is where it is producing the goods that keeps opposition quiet. But uh, I don't think, you know, ar arresting and putting a million Muslim Uyghurs in camp, re-education re camps, is actually a new technique. 
uh, at all. Uh, so they're very traditional. I guess things, what, what you were referring to are you know, some of these te techniques for identifying people and, and monitoring people, and it's, we have improved in, in those regards. Yeah, uh, it's much easier to keep track of people nowadays and keep, uh, keep, keep tabs on them, and that's one of the ways in which, you know, um, as somebody once said, forgotten who, the price of democracy is eternal vigilance. Uh, and the other famous, you know, I think the media and, and the public opinion has to keep a very careful watch on the intrusiveness of the surveillance state, which clearly, again, uh, electronic media, uh, the, the Internet and so on, have made much, much easier. Um, I mean, it's, it's fairly disturbing what, what, uh, what people know about you. I'm going to give you one one single silly example um, is that uh, I, in the part of Wales where my family comes from, there's a narrow-gauge railway called the Talatlin Railway, and I just sort of looked up its website. Now, every time I, I go on to, to Facebook, I'm deluged with advertisements for model railway uh, uh, clubs and that kind of thing. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, I'm not interested in the least in modern railways. So... Um, there is that surveillance, and, um, uh, and that is, I think, becoming it's quite disturbing. The other thing I wanted to quote, a famous quotation, is um, Winston Churchill. You know, democracy is the worst system, uh, worst political system we have, except for all the others. Uh, and I think, uh, again, we, you know, we, we need to, we do need to participate more. We need to, to vote. Uh, I get very annoyed when people in this country, Brexiteers, say the country, the nation voted to leave. Actually, 37% of the nation voted, of, of the electorate voted, and, and an artificially restricted electorate at that. Um, on the other hand, uh, in Australia, voting is compulsory. You get fined if you don't vote. So the voting figures are very high, and that's not given them a particularly competent government. <laughs> Any Australian who wants to... <laughs> in the middle up there. Yeah. Hi, how are you? Uh, my name is Cristina Parilli. I'm from Venezuela as well. Oh. Um, and I want to, to make just a little context about my question because in the Venezuelan case, we're facing a dilemma right now on how to make the government go. Uh, we are seeing that personal sanctions to government leaders are making them stay or hold down into power because the, the cost for them to leave is very high. And uh, they could also sort out potential oil san sanctions with the Chinese uh, market. So on the other hand, um, is, if we is the way for the government to go and they could get away with murder, uh, maybe it will be more likely for them to go, but this will be morally incorrect. So my question is, um, in this sense, what the international community should do? They should press or advocate for more sanctions, or they should ease the path for the government to go, even if this is uh, morally incorrect. Okay, let's follow up from the previous question. So back there in the middle. Um, hi, my name's Melissa, and I was wondering to what extent you think religion plays a part in creating and maintaining dictatorships, and I say this specifically with the case of Turkey in mind. Some, might say, some may say that it's leaning towards a dictatorship, and Erdogan is someone who does use religion to like, show his power, in a way. 
Okay, and yeah, yeah. So, anyway, the last question in the very back. Hi, um, I'm Xanthi. I was wondering with regard to education, do you think education will ever be enough or is it in our nature now more than ever to crave an authoritarian leader because we want someone to take control and make decisions for us because ultimately in modern life now compared to 200 years ago, as educated as we can be, we are too busy sometimes to make decisions ourselves. So the, quest, the question is basically, today, because we are so busy and we can't even bother to, to engage ourselves, uh, we want leaders that decide for us. I'm not sure whether this is a, a, a true historical fact, that, but, uh, but um, that's what's the question. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, Andres, about, because it's following up on, on what you said about oil. And, 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 and um, the third question was... Uh, religion. Religion, yeah, the role to religion. So if why don't you take Venezuela, you take religion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Venezuela is a really hard case, and there's no one safe way to make sure that these guys go and go soon. Um, but um, it is very hard to envision the regime ending if the international community does not have one clear voice in the subject. And as Bianca said, for years this was not the case. Perfectly respectable democratic regimes in Latin America fudged the issue again and again. So, bit of news number one. Finally, finally Latin America is coming round to the view that Maduro has to go. Bit of news number two that happens to be good, Donald Trump is silent on the matter. Uh, because let me assure you, there's one foolproof way of making sure Maduro will not go, is to have Donald Trump attack Maduro, right? Um, that will make Maduro into a hero. So Trump, somebody told Trump to shut up, and he has remained silent. That's good news. Now, last but not least, I think you have to exercise pressure. Um, I think it is true that uh, if you know you're going to be thrown into jail, if you leave power, you're less likely to leave power. That, that statement I buy. However, one of the reasons to remain in power is because you're conducting very profitable business where you're in power. The reason why the military remains allied with Maduro today in Venezuela is that the generals each was given a monopoly or a nice little line of business. So... One way to discourage these guys from continuing to support the regime is to put an end to those lines of business, and many of those involve exports, and by now the only thing Venezuela exports is oil. Um, so yes, I think you can make life for the military and civilian leadership of the regime much less pleasant if you are not shy about imposing new sanctions. Besides, it's the only way we have, so we may as well try it. Uh, uh, I suppose you could pray. I'm an atheist. That wouldn't work for me. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I think it's the case that populism uh, succeeds to some extent by offering very simple solutions to uh, problems of enormous complexity. We, we all suffer now from a huge amount of information 
overload. And populism cuts through that and says it's not all so complicated. It's really quite, quite simple in the end. And these, of course, are fake solutions. They're false solutions. Uh, and build what, a wall. Yeah, build a wall, you know. And then they, when, you, when you get in, that'll stop immigration. Uh, and, of course, when populists get into power, they usually make a mess. They don't, they don't deliver what they promised. As for as far as religion is concerned, um, again, it's a very varied picture. You have evangelicals in America are very strongly behind Donald Trump. And the fact that he uh, has, uh, uh, I mean, well, let me, code word, Stormy Daniels, that makes no difference to them. Uh, they, they say that doesn't matter because the means, uh, the means can be corrupt. The end is the, the, the important thing. And for many, worryingly for many American evangelicals, the important thing is the end of the world, bring about the rapture, Armageddon, and all the good people go to heaven. The opinion poll showed that 28% of Republican voters in the Obama presidency thought Obama was the Antichrist. Uh, And that's a lot of it is driving evangelical uh, um, policies, beliefs about uh, Israel. Uh, Again, it'll bring on the end of the world. So that's somewhat concerning. I mean, there's a completely different situation in Poland, where, again, the Catholic Church has been, for historical reasons, since um, the early 19th century, the, the main vector of Polish nationalism and Polish national identity. Uh, and so religion plays a huge part there, and the Kaczynski government has been playing to that uh, in, in many different ways. So I think you have to look at the different impacts. And in some areas, religion has had no impact at all, particularly where religious affiliation and adherence, as in Germany, for example, Eastern Germany, um, is, is, is not is really pretty pretty low. Um, coming back to Venezuela and Nicaragua and other countries, I don't know if any of you know what is the Magnesky Act. The Magnesky Act that was created to uh, sanction Russians who were corrupt and involved in crime is now being used and applied by the United States as well as by some European Union countries, members of the European Union. And the Magnitsky Act will be the one thing that may have an effect on Venezuela and on Nicaragua because it will target and it will be applied to members of the governments who are involved in corruption and in crimes, and it is already being applied. There has been a legislation that was introduced in Congress recently for Nicaragua, that they have a combo, and they are as well applying it to Venezuela and will be applied to many countries, and I think it is a wonderful, wonderful choice. Yes, it should be. I'm not saying that it should not. Absolutely, it should be applied to Saudi Arabia, and I hope that they will do Yes, okay. sir. I think we are Thank you. fortunately coming to a close. I think you, we posed the initial question, you know, why has there been this return of authoritarian governments across the world? I think we have had a number of different suggestions for solutions. And I, I think we need social science. We need history. We also need people who engage to bring down these governments and, and uh, create opinion, uh, move uh, people, and you were talking about sentiments, and, and, you know, we are in order to bring down these type of regimes, we, yeah, we have also, yes, and and I was going to come to that, we have also, and I'm very grateful to Alan for leading us through the conversation tonight.